Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy. It's me, Panel Beater with um, my esteemed co-host for this morning, Neonatal. Good morning, Neonatal. Oh, good morning, just the two of us today. It is just the two of us. Um, Dr. Sharma was a late withdrawal. Mm. Some, he muttered something about pandemic. Yeah, being a frontline healthcare worker, <laughs> doing important important work in... No, I don't know. I said, come on, Dr. Sharma, get your priorities <laughs> right. Sounds like a weak excuse. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. Um, I, but I gather he's been um, uh, doing a lot of testing. Yes, yes, working uh, in screening clinics, uh, you know, fighting the good fight. Fighting the good fight, yeah, yeah. Um, we might be hearing some interesting news um, in terms of Victorian stats later today, I think. Oh, yes, yes, I'm sure um, we're, what, now five or six days out from from the, the protests? Yep, yeah. And uh, it's uh, about time when we'd start to see a spike, if there was a spike. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see yeah. see how it all, how it all unfolds. The um, the late breaking news last night on the uh, on the social media and then eventually through all the mainstream mm. um, channels was the GP, mm. um, asymptomatic but had worked in three centres. Yeah, so and was self isolating when he was meant to be self isolating. So overall, did exactly what he was meant to be doing and um, and was completely you know justified in everything that he did so uh you know he wasn't actually a risk to the public in my view um and i'm sure that there's plenty of outrage on twitter and outrage by by people having a go at him for working while sick but absolutely asymptomatic um and just you know hmm. an unlucky individual really yeah yeah and and i when i when the news broke i took it as a sign that um Things are actually getting good because, you know, as recently as, say, two or three weeks ago, this would have been in the news for mm, sure, mm. but it wouldn't have been the only COVID news item, would it? No. Um, so, in a sense, when you're starting to just get these one or two news items, yeah. rather than being the whole wallpaper. Yeah, it know. could be much worse. Yeah. Hey, we've got um, ageing and longevity on our mind. Yeah, I'm very excited. We do. We've got a couple of great guests coming up. Um, and um, I wanted to ask you just before we go to our first guest, did, do, you, do you feel have you ever felt old? Yeah, so this is a really good question. I think I started to feel old after leaving my undergraduate and finding things started to hurt that never hurt before. So I'd go for a run, my knee would start to ache, right? I'd wake up with a sore back, and then you know, not too long ago, I started finding the single uh, grey hair growing out of the top of my head and I'm like, oh, this is this is a bad, bad sign of what's to come. So I'm 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 quite intrigued in this. You know, I'm yeah. still I'm still young on the on the age scale. So can I just stop aging from here? Yeah, is that my question? Is that, is that maybe? Um, so you're you're just about to go through a big rite of passage. You've just done the hard yards mm. and you're at the tail end of a long medical degree. Mm. Um, and that's a big rite of passage. Do do you do you think you can remember what you thought old was at the beginning of say that stage of your life, and what you think old is now, and is it different? Oh, it's definitely different. Yeah, um, 
There's yeah. a, there's a bunch of studies that ask people um, where um, they'll ask like teenagers, they'll ask people in their twenties, their thirties, their forties, and fifties, and, and right through yeah. the, and the decades. Um, you know, what do you consider old to be? And of course, you know, you'll hear some twelve year old say that. 30 years old or something mm. and of course the 30 year olds are saying you know it's 75 mm. 80 um and then you know people in their 70s thank you thankfully are saying things like no i've got some a lot of good years in me yet yeah and that, that kind of thing there's another interesting aspect of thinking about it so with our um longevity and aging in mind we've got a couple of guests our first guest coming up shortly is um Professor David Sinclair. Um, uh, many uh, listeners will probably have come across Professor mm-hmm. Sinclair in some fashion um, uh, or other in the past, and he's a geneticist at um, Harvard Medical School, um, and uh, and and uh, a lot to um, say about his work. Uh, shortly, we'll be getting him on Skype. Um, all being well with yeah. uh, with that connection, and then later we've got uh, Dr. Kate Gregorovich. And um, uh, Kate's a uh, Jared. Ger- I knew I was yeah. going. To, I knew <laughs> I was going to tongue tied. Got it in you, <laughs> geriatrician. 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 See, I knew it. Yeah. I was, was practicing this morning, <laughs> um, and um, and and has a a book uh, about to come out. And and by the way, um, we'll be talking about Dr. Sinclair's upcoming um, um, online speaking tour and Kate's book, both dealing with aging and longevity, mm-hmm. but both coming at it. Obviously, a um, a geneticist and a geriatrician. Geriatrician. Thank you. We'll get it, we'll get it eventually. <laughs> Coming at it uh, in in uh, important but uh, different ways. It's it's fascinating that they're almost on the one spectrum. One's the the medical researcher, and then one's the the geriatrician who's putting it into practice. And it's interesting to see. Well, I, I guess we'll find out how their point of view changes from the you know the groundbreaking research to the day to day practice. Yeah. You know, where do their point of view lie in how aging? Um, should be viewed in this modern world. It'll be really, really interesting. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Well, wouldn't you know it? The gods, the Skype gods haven't been kind to us for some reason. We haven't been able to make uh, the connection uh, to Boston as planned. So as a plan B, Neonatal, you've got a, an article that caught your eye and I'm going to dash off and try and follow up plan C, D and yeah. E. Uh, this article is actually by one of our, uh, one of our yes, David. So if, he's, if he is listening, uh, I'm sure he's going to correct me uh, pretty heavily on my interpretation of this article. But the article is basically uh, titled, Why Does COVID-19 Disproportionately Affect Older People? Now, this is a really, really interesting question because we see in the news every day, uh, particularly now overseas, um, with the death rate in Australia being quite low or to minimal at the moment, uh, that the mortality rate is you know, huge for our older generations. Uh, this was an issue in Italy uh, where they had a, a, more, a higher proportion of older people in um, their country and was having a, a larger death rate because of it. So 74% of deaths uh, for, from COVID-19 occur in people greater than 65 years of age. And this is a very similar response seen in uh, other diseases, such as other human coronaviruses or just the, the common influenza. Um, and age has, be- has shown itself to be the greatest mortality risk factor. Now, there's a couple of different theories around this, uh, but one of them, which... Uh, 
you know, Professor Sinclair was discussing was the immune response. So the immune response has a couple of basic main tasks that it does. It's rec- it recognizes the disease, it alerts the body to the disease, it destroys it, and it clears it. And each of these four uh, tasks uh, become increasingly dysfunctional in our older generation. There are some major changes to the immune system uh, in aging. I'm going to throw out um, a big word, which uh, hopefully doesn't scare anyone. It's immunosenescence. Now, I can barely pronounce that, but it's basically the immune system degradation with age. Uh, So this results in decreased pathogen recognition, uh, decreased alert signaling, and decreased clearance. And one of the other major changes in age is that basically the body goes into a widespread uh, systemic inflammation. It's just a very low grade, constant inflammation uh, in the body. And both of these are major drivers of dysfunction in COVID-19. Now, uh, in this article, it discusses a few uh, different changes that are occurring in um, the older generations, which may be contributing to their their COVID-19 mortality rate. So, for example, uh, there's this immune cell in our lungs called alveolar macrophages, and the thought is that currently they are actually uh, providing a negative outcome to, instead of doing their job, which is to you know, clear pathogens, they're, they're actually almost too active and in the different and in an in a incorrect state almost, resulting in excessive lung damage. Uh, and then the other part of our, our immune system, which is called the adaptive immune system, which is basically the part of the immune system which uh, learns and uh, can respond quickly to, to infections that it has seen before. So this is why we get vaccines, for example. Uh, in the older generations, this is actually less effective. Now, one of the things that uh, contributes to our immune system is our general body health, um, you know, macronutrition, micronutrition. And one of, the, one of the comments in the article is about vitamin D. Now, we found out that vitamin D... Uh, or in this article, they've they've say that uh, vitamin D has a decrease uh, in deficiencies of vitamin D. Sorry, there is a decreased efficacy of both the adaptive and the innate immune response, which is basically uh, the two sides of our immune system that we we're discussing before. Uh, so, in deficiency, which is fairly widespread in certain areas such as Melbourne, um, there's good evidence that actually vitamin D supplementation may assist in our uh, adaptive and innate immune response, which may assist in our response to COVID-19. Now, this is all very unfounded. There's a lot of discussion about this in the scientific world. Uh, and it's almost a bit of an ethical question. Do we uh, you know, start putting vitamin D in the water, for example? <laughs> Do we uh, start giving it to everyone over the age of 65? Jeez, I leave the studio for one minute. Oh. And I come back and I hear, what, we're putting vitamin D in the water now, Look, neonatal. Uh, I'm, this is all hypotheticals. Uh, no, no. But the, the question is, uh, what is the role of, of uh, widespread uh, kind of shotgun effect of, um, of supplementation with vitamin D? And could it possibly help? All of these are questions that I have no way qualified to answer. <laughs> well, I, we might be able to get some help here because um, we haven't been able to chase down um, uh, Professor Sinclair on phone nor Skype after a couple of different tries. I'll try again a bit later. But um, Dr. Kate uh, Gr- Gregorovich is um, uh, on the phone and has been listening in to what you had to say. So we might be able to... Now- Kate, I, I apologise for everything that I've said. <laughs> um, we've got uh, um, 
her on the line, I think. Are you hello. there, Kate? Yes, hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for having okay. me on this morning. So, off the bat, two immediate apologies. First of all, three immediate <laughs> apologies, I think, um, for mispronouncing your profession, <laughs> for mispronouncing your surname, and Thanks. for not coming to you uh, on schedule. Oh, well, you actually got my name right, so oh, oh, well okay. done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, did you uh, did you catch uh, neonatal? Oh, first of all, and welcome to Triple R and Radiotherapy. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Yes, I did catch uh, neonatal talk about the about immunosenescence and the immune changes of ageing, and I think it was a very good summary of what happens. The vitamin D question is absolutely fascinating, and I think one of the big unknowns is whether vitamin D supplementation itself is going to have an impact on the immune system or, and whether, or whether the vitamin D deficiency is a marker of other things going on, so whether it's a shock versus a cause. And I know there's some work going on in that area at the moment. And, and what's the status of the work as far as you understand it? Um, as I said, uh, I spoke to a colleague recently who's doing some work in this area and he hasn't got his results yet. But, um, you know, we know that supplementing vitamin D in people who have vitamin D deficiency, um, we do that clinically because we know there's benefits. But giving people vitamin D who've already got sufficient vitamin D doesn't yeah. seem to have any benefits. Yeah. So... I wouldn't be advocating for putting it in the water at the moment, but it's certainly worth, um, as you said before, it's, it's vitamin D deficiency is very widespread, and so it's certainly worth checking in with your doctor. Yeah. Um, I read somewhere, and um, I'm ready to be corrected off the bat, um, that one possible small part, not the total explanation, obviously, um, that uh, black Americans were most more susceptible was because as a population, their vitamin D deficiency was more noticeable than white American population. Did that catch your radar at all? I haven't seen that, but I very much doubt that's the whole story. Yeah. And one of my big focuses, and you know, one things I write about, um, and the area of research I focus on is around the psychosocial factors that influence health. Yeah. And so, as we know, um, once this COVID nineteen outbreak and plus the recent protests have really brought awareness that Black Americans have suffered really high rates of social social economic disadvantage. Um, a lot of that comes around to racism. So they often work in jobs where they're not as able to protect themselves. In addition to that, we know that things like, there's some really interesting emerging evidence that things like racism can actually um, cause a degree of chronic stress and that itself may have an influence on our immune function. And as um, in that article that Neonatal was talking about, Part of the thing with COVID that's so interesting is that it doesn't actually cause that systemic massive inflammatory response with all that infiltrate into the lungs until about day 7 to 10. And so it's something which is about when we would normally be seeing an antibody-mediated response, but getting this, instead of the antibody controlling it, for some people they seem to be getting this uncontrolled level of inflammation. And so perhaps it's some people who are under chronically high levels of stress and for uh, regarding uh, and some type of socioeconomic, but potentially also related to some lifestyle issues. So there was an article in the British Medical Journal about um, obesity, the food industry, um, food choices 
because obesity is also being linked to higher rates of mortality from COVID-19, that these uh, these changes with the immune system might also be part of it with a less regulation around the inflammatory response. That's fascinating. So uh, with a lot of these things that are considered you know, higher risk factors for, for COVID-19, like you said, chronic stress, obesity, generally poor health, uh, I think what's... What I'm taking from it and what our listeners are probably taking from it is that a lot of the impacts in aging and how, you know, how we, how we, how we lead, lead our life up until those final 10, 15, 20 years has a major impact on those final years. So could you discuss a little bit about how the, you know, our nutrition, how our lifestyle and how uh, our general well-being in those younger years can contribute to leading a happy and healthy older life. Yeah, absolutely. So as a nutrition, a lot of my clinical work is seeing people with problems related to ageing. Having said that, the actual chronological age of my patients can vary hugely. And I meet people who are living really well into their 90s, and I know people with age-related problems in their 60s. And, you know, some of this is genetic, some of this is factors that aren't under our control, but a lifestyle has a huge impact on this. And so in my book, I write about the science of ageing. I write about the actual underlying biology of what's going on and how that translates into physical differences in older age. And I write about the impact of lifestyle factors on on this. And so the food choices that we... There's everyday food choices we make, that everyday decision to move, things like having a regular bedtime so you get a good sleep, have a accumulate over time to make a big difference in our health status in older age. Mm. So you're saying that as a young, uh, well, relatively young, maybe with the grey hair, uh, 24-year-old, that I should be basing my uh, my current lifestyle habits around um, you know, good, good bedtimes, healthy food, regular exercise, and setting myself up for that long and healthy life. And so one of the most important messages from my book that I want people to get is that these factors, yes, we've got a lot of evidence that they are associated with better health in older age. But even more importantly, even more for motivation, they have an immediate positive impact. And so there's no point in living as living as long as possible if we're not enjoying life and not setting ourselves up the right conditions to learn, to be mentally engaged, to seek to challenge ourselves. And so one of the things that I really highlight in my book is the way all these things impact our well-being in the present. So that exercise, um, while while, um, exercise being fit is linked with a low risk of dementia in later life, it is also linked with better mood that getting enough sleep, again, people who are chronically sleep-derived have increased risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes and dementia, but having enough sleep is also fantastic for our memory and the present, for our ability to think and reason. And even nutrition as well. There's some um, shorter-term studies showing that eating a diet that's based around a lot of vegetables and whole grains, uh, getting some oily fish, avoiding ultra-processed foods, could actually improve our mood. Um, 
Kate, I just um, you alluded to your book there, and I did have a wonderful introduction. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you can imagine the introduction I had prepared for you. The book you're referring to is Staying Alive, The Science of Living Healthier, Happier and Longer. Um, and in that book, you bring to the discussion your experiences um, in, um, uh, in uh, hospital settings as well as community settings, um, dealing with a whole range of issues related to, um, to ageing. I wonder if uh, you wouldn't mind, we might just take a very short break and come back to you to really unpack that in greater detail and, and pick up perhaps um, even thinking about what uh, uh, geriatricians do. Did I pronounce it right? No. Nearly. <laughs> Nearly. <laughs> I'm getting better. Um, and, uh, and, we'll, and we'll talk about even just defining ageing I think will be very interesting. So if you don't mind, uh, we'll be back with you in just a moment. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. We've um, started the uh, show talking uh, off the bat about uh, COVID-19 and a recent uh, research paper by one of our intended guest, Professor Sinclair, and we was just a moment ago talking with um, Dr. Kate Grigorovich um, about her take on these things. Um, Kate, are you still there? Yes, I am. Uh, welcome back. Now, we, you might just uh, rewind a little bit here, Kate, and go to the, the, the work that you're currently doing and um, move our way into thinking about what your book is communicating with us, that book being Staying Alive, The Science of Living Healthier, Happier and Longer. So that word I can't pronounce, and you're going to say it for me? Geriatrician. <laughs> yeah. what, what do you do? So I'm really lucky that I get to look in a variety of clinical areas. So as geriatricians, we're um, specialists in care of older adults, but that means taking an approach to health that looks not just at medical conditions, but also uh, helping people, make sure people are able to um, be as independent as they want to be, to look at nutritional factors, to look at social factors. So my jumping off point with my patients a lot of the time is, What's important to you and how can we work towards that? I also do some work in acute general medicine, so I do see some younger patients as well. So I really, and um, with the community work, I, get, I really enjoy getting to work in a variety of different settings. Sure. So that already, already um, uh, my need for definitions arises. You're, when do you say old and when you say young, what's the demarcation? Um, do you know, I think that there's in some ways no demarcation. Um, Ageing really, or older age really is a social construct. And often I I do see patients at a variety of ages um, and people coming with age-related problems can actually be, the chronological age can vary hugely. Mm. Now, we we get taught in medical school that the, the, the routine age, the 65, is this age a um, a biological age or is it more of a social construct? So age 65 is um, the, well, it was the traditional retirement age. And I think around the time that that came in, which was obviously a long time ago, it was a lot more meaningful because people often didn't live that much longer than 65. Now most people who are that age are going to live for another two decades or so. Mm. And so, you know, that's a lot of time left in your life. And so things, as we get older, things do change in life. 
we're at different life stages. But this idea that you should be performing a certain social role or that you're not as capable at that age, I think is one that we really need to do away with. Um. I was uh, at the top of the show talking to Neonatal about a rite of passage being finishing uh, his uh, his medical degree. In thinking about ageing and longevity, I'm guessing the big signifiers are things like uh, puberty and um, uh, menopause and, uh, you know, lowering of testosterone levels and things like that. What are the major signposts through life from, a, from your point, uh, your perspective? I mean, I guess it's, um, it's hard to say exactly what is the, you know, the normal markers of ageing. There certainly are hormonal changes that happen with age. Like one thing that does happen is a decrease in growth hormone. Although, interestingly, this decrease in growth hormone might actually protect our health into later age. Um, and so... There's things like the menopause is obviously a major marker in women and men don't have the same kind of change. Um, in terms of what happens to our memory and thinking, we still have a huge amount to learn what normal age-related changes are. But one thing that is positive is that you know, the majority of people won't get dementia. And so, as I said at the start, I think a lot of what we think about with sort of age-related changes, a lot of it is around social things rather than, I guess, thinking specifically about the biology. Mm. So when um, there's a lot of talk, especially with um, Professor Sinclair's work, about uh, ageing and the the idea that ageing might be able to be labelled as a disease. Uh, so as a geriatrician, um, and you've talked a lot about you know, how holistic your your practice needs to be where it's the the entire person your total physical mental and social well-being uh how do you view the idea that aging should be labeled as a disease i think it's really interesting you know and the biology of aging with the cellular changes that happen with some cells taking on um no longer being able to replicate themselves and taking on different roles within our bodies and changes in mitochondrial function um, accumulation DNA errors and immune, as you talked about before the immune changes it's really fascinating and it's really multifaceted and one thing I would say a lot of the cellular changes that we do associate with aging are things that are really essential to life they you know part of being alive or byproducts of being alive and I think that one of the problems with if we label age age is something that we don't talk about enough as part of the reason people get age-related chronic diseases, because, you know, we know that older age is such an important factor in all of these things like dementia and heart disease. Um, I guess the risk of labelling it as a, as a disease is we also don't want to then put, make a whole, you know, label a whole lot of people as having a disease when really they're just going through normal life processes. Mm. Um, I'm wondering, you know... We often have uh, guests on the show who might be in here talking about nutrition or exercise or um, or diet uh, diet nutrition um, or um, uh, thinking about uh, managing stress. You know, which uh, I guess is an aging factor as well. Uh, sleep, the other one. Can you talk to us about how you see each of those playing a role in addressing aging and how we live with those uh, in you know cognizant of uh, our aging process? Yeah, and so there's a lot of factors to unpack within all of that. 
obviously nutrition, exercise, sleep are all and buffering stress are so important in how we create health and how we maintain our health. And in my book, I do talk about all of these factors and I talk about the evidence around these things in maintaining health. And one thing which I would say is they do all complement each other in a lot of ways. So as an example, if people have slept well, we know that it's actually associated with being able to make better food choices which is really important in the food environment that we live in. Around nutrition as well, there's a couple of really large studies that were published not long ago in British Medical Journal looking at ultra-processed foods and that people who had diets higher in ultra-processed foods had a higher risk of mortality and a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. And that's why I advocate for avoiding those two types and eating mostly foods that are in their natural state. Um, we'd exercise as well. Exercise, you know, if there was a pill that had the effects of exercise, we'd all be taking it. And inactivity is actually contributes a lot to people um, needing help in later life. And so with ageing, we lose particularly what we call fast-twitch muscle fibres, the power muscle fibres. But doing strength training is one way to offset this, to keep these fibres going so that you are stronger and able to do the things you need to do in everyday life. But as I said, all of these things do intersect. So if you're exercising more, you, it often helps you to sleep better. If you're um, eating a more nutritious diet, often that can um, be more motivating to then you know, do your exercise. And I think the other part of health which we do not focus on enough is that health is not just physical. So as humans, you know, we've got this amazing ability to create for abstract thought and for social connection and caring about others. And this is also absolutely integral to feeling really well. And I talk in my book quite a bit about positive emotion and also about finding meaning and purpose. Because really, if you're not doing things that you feel are important in your life, if you're not doing something you feel has a bit more impact than just beyond your you know, every day, it's hard sometimes to find the motivation to make positive behaviour changes. You're on Radiotherapy with myself, Panel Beta and Neonatal, and we're talking with uh, Dr. Grigorovich, whose book, Staying Alive, The Science of Living Healthier, Happier and Longer, is... Um, Available on pre-order at this stage, isn't it? Um, We can't find it in the bookstore, is that right? That's right. It will be available in bookstores shortly, though. Right. Um, Kate, I wonder if you could um, talk to us a little bit about what are the aspirations for, um, you know, longevity and ageing from your point of view? So there seems to be a distinction between those who want to, you know, chase the fountain of youth um, and... um, and those who really just want to focus on how we can stay as healthy as we can for as long as we can, which may not necessarily mean we're living that much longer. It's just that while we are living, we'll be healthier. Can you do? Yes. Yeah, talk to that distinction? Yeah, so look, the science in this area is absolutely fascinating. Um, but one of the really challenging aspects of this area is translating the laboratory and animal research to humans. And so, of course, when, when people are looking at um, ways to extend lifespan, it's a lot easier to do it in a worm that lives for two weeks than in a human where the maximum lifespan seems to be about 120 years. And we don't 
really know, you know, even within mammals, why some mammals live longer than others. And so I think we've got to be really cautious about how we extrapolate evidence from animal studies to humans, and that's been proven out so many times in drug trials. Um, having said that, some of the things, and, I, and this is the other part of this as well, is that I think very much, as I said earlier, we've got to be really conscious that we need to enjoy our life today. And so things that are particularly onerous or restrictive, lifestyle strategies like that, I don't think that it, we should be applying those things to our own lives you know, if they're not creating some kind of enjoyment to make it sustainable. Like, as an example, we, there's been a lot of animal studies showing significant caloric restriction can extend lifespan, so, you know, not eating very much for your entire life. But there's not many people who can put that into practice and also put it into practice in a way that's safe so they're actually meeting their uh, micronutrient needs. So I think there's got to be a degree of balance with all of that. And so that's why I've said in my book I've focused much more on lifestyle factors, on things that we can implement and also in ways that they can improve our quality of life in the present. So that's, um, that's really fascinating because with the, the discussion around um, you know, significant caloric restriction and not being able to implement it, I think and uh, a lot of individuals then having macro or micronutrient deficiencies, I think that plays into a lot of people's fears about, um, about spe- specifically around vitamins and minerals. And as we know in Australia, the supplement and vitamin industry is a multi-billion dollar industry which... Uh, capitalizes on this fear. Do you think that part of the reason that that is such a huge industry and you know uh, helps to uh, drive so many Australians to you know different chemists to pick up their their multivitamin pills? Do you think part of that fear is surrounding aging and aging well? Look, I think it is, and I think part of it is there are. I think there needs to be more advertising restrictions around supplements and they're able to make some... I've seen a supplement ads recently saying that they can manage stress. And, you know, it's a fairly nebulous term in some ways. And, you know, those things, there's not a lot of evidence backing up the claims they're making. And I think sometimes, you know, life is really challenging. Life is really hard. There's a lot of things outside our control. And sometimes people are looking for something that would seem to solve these problems in a relatively simple way. So the miracle pill. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, in the news um, relatively recently, there a lot more attention is being paid to loneliness and loneliness uh, at a societal level, but um, even more specifically as we age. And uh, it's being counted as a risk factor for, you know, premature premature death um, as well. And I noticed you quite directly are talking about happiness in life. I wonder if you could link um, how you're understanding that there's this social impact. You've already talked about the social construct of uh, the concept of ageing itself, but uh, then there's the the social context um, in which older people are increasingly isolated, or it seems, uh, if reports are to be believed. I think it's been really good to see some more um, awareness brought to the issue of loneliness. And sadly, because of our social structures, you know, we often live in fairly small units within our own houses. It's easy to become isolated. And loneliness for humans is a chronic stress state. 
And so, you know, if you think back to hunter-gatherer times, the way we evolved, a person by themselves would have had been very high risk of not getting enough food or of attack by an animal. And so even though now we live in vastly different ways, we've still got those underlying biological things that happen to us. And so loneliness can lead to activation of certain neurological and certain hormonal pathways related to chronic stress. And so this seems to be why it's linked to higher mortality rates. And, you know, this is something that the the lonely individual, sometimes people can make changes that can lead to more social connection. But it's also something we need to look at as a society and see how we can reach out to people, how we can make people feel more included. Pete, I think we got a heightened sensitivity to that um, with COVID in the lockdown. I, I can speak from personal experience. I only got to see my... Um, late 70s mum for the first time uh, just on Wednesday since the f- start of the lockdown because we don't live in the same city. Um, and, you know, I don't think of my mum as old in the sense that she's, you know, got chronic disease or anything like that. But I did know, I did I be- become uh, increasingly self-conscious about her living by herself um, in isolation, quite literally. Yeah, and I've had so many heartbreaking conversations with patients, you know, phone consultations, and they, some of these people don't have any close family and just haven't seen anyone for weeks or months. And even walking down the street, they were scared of walking too close yeah. to other people. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've only got a, a short time uh, left, Kate. I wonder if we could start to think about hearing uh, a, a recipe of yours for good, healthy, happy living um, as we as we age. Wherever we are right now, um, what what are your uh, what are your big tips on on things that we should be making sure we're doing or not doing? So what I'd say is living this book. Although it's about aging, it's really about living. And living means enjoying life. It means finding happiness, meaning, and purpose. It means learning, seeking challenges, and valuing yourself. And we need to look at what matters to us, what gives us joy. And we need to use that as the motivation to create health now rather than just avoiding disease in the future. Right. And and so... um the things that we hear, you know, as somebody who's not the expert, I still think my exposure to media tells me that I've got to be exercising every day. I've got to um, make sure I eat mainly a whole foods, plant-based diet. Uh, I've got to stay off the ciggies. I've got to get some sleep and I've got to manage my stress. Have I missed anything? No, that exactly sums it up. And I go into, in, in my book, I cover all the strategies around that and I cover all the evidence for it. And so, as I said, we, I think that um, a lot of us, we know the changes we need to make and nutrition, sleep, exercise, buffering stress and social engagement. And it's finding the, um, often finding the reasons to do those and to make, do them in a sustained way. Yeah, sure. Look, uh, Kate, we do need to uh, wrap it up there. First of all, I want to really thank you and appreciate your flexibility with coming on a lot earlier than we had scheduled and then to hang around with us for a lot longer than we had scheduled. Really appreciate it. I I know I've benefited from it. I'm sure our listeners have. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Dr. Kate Grigorovich, whose book, Staying Alive, The Science of Living Healthier, Happier and and Longer, is um, available on pre-order if you do your... uh, Get onto the Google machine and uh, take it from there. 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Um, Neonatal, I'm wondering, uh, on the back of talking with uh, Kate about um, ageing and, and all of that biz, where does ageing fit in in a medical education? So yeah. does it come up discreetly like, um, or does it come up more overtly? Yeah, so it's um, a a pretty key part of how we how we we're taught in our medical school because we see aging uh, in general. We see it in uh, most of our patients because most of our patients are on the older older end of their life. Uh, you know, just medical or surgical patients. Everyone who everyone who is coming into the hospital is more likely to be sixty five, seventy, seventy five. Uh, down the end of end of the scale, but there is a distinct aged care rotation that we're that we're required to undertake, which is uh, where we get to uh, go to a um, an aged care facility or an aged care aged care ward, work with geriatricians and the variety of people that they have around them. Specifically, um, uh, big shout out to our allied health uh, professionals. You know. Occupational therapists, physiotherapists, dietitians. Uh, the it's a real multidisciplinary team uh, working on that aged care, um, you know, end of life uh, area. But uh, it also encompasses other things like psychiatry of old age, where a lot of the conditions that we you normally see in psychiatry, like schizophrenia, depression, it's really quite different in the in the aged care population so we could be and where's that fitting in in the education side of things yeah, right? get, so, yeah. yeah so we get taught um quite quite extensively about um how what the changes are in the aged care and what the change in the right. age population and what they are in the younger population so if you were if you were doing a, a unit or two on psychiatry in a in a medical degree, mm. you will the distinct the age factor will be a um, clear addressed. distinction. Yeah, okay. yes, yes. Um, but a lot of what we get taught around aged care is what um, Dr. Kate was discussing was with trying to make it a holistic experience. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, trying to address everything that you possibly can about that patient's life, and not just you know the medical issues that sometimes we get caught up on and just focus on yeah yeah and what's really curious uh, you know part of what's behind my questioning of you about this is that you know you're at the tail end of the generic the general mm-hmm. um, uh, medical degree but you're taking yourself in the direction as neonatal's nickname suggests at the very very other end of life the very very beginning um, what are the compare, comparisons and contrasts you can make as where that fits in uh, in the in their education? Yeah, so um, again, we get a distinct um, pediatric rotation and a distinct. These are the changes that happen in um, in our younger patients. And I haven't really uh, had this juxtaposition before, where with someone's asked me what are the, the exact changes because it's quite fascinating. You think of we get taught that kids aren't little little adults you know that's that's always that's always Say that the, again kids aren't little adults yeah so it's the thing that it's the idea that 
children will present with a disease and it's not, you can't treat it as if that disease is the same as the adult disease. It could be the exact same disease process, but we treat it very differently in children. I, and you, you're gonna, you do that at this, oh, that's a, that sounds juicy. Can you just, in your 30, 40 seconds summary, what's really going on there? Uh, it's it's a very very complex um, knot in a thirty forty seconds, <laughs> but it it's just how we need to. There's sometimes um, diseases present similarly similarly in young and old, but um, they may have different underlying mechanisms, or they may have the same underlying mechanism, but be present very differently. And it's a uh, it also the individual is very different. Children can't be treated as little adults because they have their own special needs and their own special requirements. And you know, yeah. maybe another show. Uh, we really appreciate uh, you being with us uh, this morning. Catch us on our socials. Catch us on on demand or the podcast. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.